Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part four of the Commonweal story with Commonweal co-founder Michael Lerner and Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, medical director of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program. Rachel. <laughs> Welcome to the new school. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> So many ways we could start this conversation. We've worked together for over 30 years. That's three quarters of Commonwealth's history. And I think maybe a starting point is um, we have some new people here who don't know what Commonwealth is yet. So a very interesting question, which has been debated for 40 years, actually. I was going to say. Is what is Commonwealth? What is Commonwealth? Oh, are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I might learn something from you about it. I think it depends on who you talk to, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for absolutely everyone who touches Commonweal, it's a place of growth. That is something we would, would be able to say. And it's growth in personal integrity and purpose. Um, in the ability to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. But that is a, a, the basic level. Right? How that plays out is totally different for each person. And I think most of the people who come here are mavericks. I mean, much more so in the past <laughs> than now, but even now. And the fact that there really isn't a common will way um, is what has allowed people to inhabit their maverickness, their ability to see beyond what most people see and be something that belongs to the future, which may appear quirky in the present or even ungrounded. And um, the Thing that about the thing about Commonweal is everyone who shows up here has a, has an idea, and it's an idea that's rooted in their in their being, in their deepest being. And they may have found difficulty in finding a home for it in this world. And many of the people who arrive here have ideas that are so. Um, so ahead of time that they have been judged for having them. And I think people come here and they find a place to make that idea real. And they also find support in the here and now world, the kind of people um, who come here, uh, certainly in the early days, like me, um, often have no idea about uh, bookkeeping and, you know, taxes and, you know, the basic, what you need to do in this world. And Commonweal basically said, come and be, come and do your, your finest, most, and the work that has the most integrity for you here. We will be the container for that. 
We know about bookkeeping, and we know about, and we will take care of those things. <clears throat> the IRS will not come to you because we will take care of those things and do whatever it is that you were born to do here. And you know, everyone comes with an idea that's usually very far ahead of its time. I came here, um, I remember meeting you at this really wonderful meeting, but the idea that I had was that healing had something to do with medicine. Mm -hmm. And that medicine was not about science. It was about the will to live and rather mystical things that you really couldn't talk about. And, you know, that healing should be central in medicine, not science, healing. Science was just a tool of healing, right? There's nobody to talk to about that until you and I sat down quite by accident together and had a very long conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember where that was? I do. <laughs> so do you. Um, I also remember getting there. It was very funny. Um, I had to borrow someone's car, and it was a shift. And I did not know how to drive. I couldn't shift for myself. I didn't know how to drive a car. And the car must have stalled out 15 times. And each time it stalled out, I said, why am I going to this luncheon? And the luncheon was held by a dentist. Do you remember this Very guy? Well. Yeah. He had the biggest wine cellar in San Francisco under his house. Mm -hmm. Right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. And he was interested in something, and it was Ken Pelletier, was it? who invited, uh, at, at the invitation of this man, this very wealthy man, invited a group of people to come and meet with him to share some ideas. And we were in a Chinese restaurant, something like that. That was a coffee house. Was that a coffee uh, house? It was a coffee house, yeah. yeah. So I walk in, and there are all these men, mm -hmm. right? There are always men at the time. There are all these men, and I sit down, and I turn to the fellow next to me, and I say, hello. My name, and at that time, was Naomi Remen, and he says, I'm Michael Lerner. <laughs> right. And we're sitting at a table of people, and we're about to have lunch, and we start talking, and we talk, and we talk, and wonderful. Wonderful. Somebody you can talk to healing about who has profound ideas about. I mean, wonderful. And we then look up and everyone's gone. <laughs> They've all ordered and eaten and left. <laughs> and I never saw them go. <laughs> do you remember? I do. I mean... It was wonderful. It was wonderful. <laughs> and so I had this crazy idea about um, doing work with cancer out here. And, um, and I thought it was uh, something I would love to do, but I absolutely didn't have the courage to do it. Um, and, um, and we talked about it. And uh, uh, we talked about it for a year or so, actually. But at that time, we talked about it. And my memory is that you finally looked at me and said, well, let's do it. Mm. And you, it makes me cry, actually. You were the person who gave me the courage to do the cancer health program. You know? 
Yeah. Well, um, I was at the time working on a houseboat in Sausalito. I had an office with two other doctors. They were doing acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And um, we had dogs and cats and <clears throat> uh, the Amphali was the name of the boat. It used to belong to um, Watts, right, Alamonts. And um, I had gathered up all the people with cancer that the doctors um, didn't know what to do with because they had gone beyond treatment. And uh, I went around to a number of doctors and I said, gee, I'm not a therapist, but I'm happy. I I, want to do a practice where I talk to people and their families about um, the meaning of what's happening to them and all of this. They thought this was quite crazy. But these people were taking up their time. Uh, There was nothing more that could be done for them. And they were taking up their their time, you know. And so I got a a ton of referrals. I filled the whole practice in about three weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was doing these sessions with people and their family and talking about the cancer experience and doing a little healing imagery here and there. And um, it was wonderful. And some of the outcomes were very wonderful. So I had the cancer people. Mm-hmm. You did. I mean, I had all these people. It was very simple to to fill a retreat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You attribute this to me, but I'm not sure the attribution is correct. But you, you have sometimes said that you thought my great insight was that healing takes place in community. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all sure it was my insight. But yes. Yes, it was. Regardless of whose insight it was. <laughs> it was your insight. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whose insight it was, what we found in the Cancer Help Program over 30 years and continue to find is that um, in the course of a week, uh, people frequently find much deeper healing than they can find in five years of psychotherapy or whatever else it is, that there's something about the container of a deeply intentional week with eight people and complete dedication to their collective and individual well-being that elicits levels of discovery that keep me in awe 30 years later, that... I mean, we have a Cancer Help program starting next week. I think it's our 187th or something like that. And and everyone remains completely fresh to me. The metaphor for me is that each one is like a bouquet of flowers, and you watch these eight flowers open, and you will never see the same bouquet twice. Each flower is absolutely unique. And it remains, I mean, I know that it works, but I still don't understand how it works. So I think I would like to ask you, do you understand how it works? Um, I'm never worried about how things You've work. You've actually said that to me All before. I care about is that they work. <laughs> right, right. But, you right. know, you're, you, the quote mm-hmm. that you said was somewhat different to me. Uh-huh. And it's more powerful for me. So let me just say yeah. that. Uh, you didn't say that healing happens in community. What what I thought you mm-hmm. what I thought was one of your great one of your great mm-hmm. uh, insights about healing 
was that community is a tool of healing. Mm -hmm. That the formation of community is a, it amplifies Mm -hmm. the healing process. It's a container. Even more than a container. More than a container. It is a condition Mm -hmm. of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And that the formation of community is as much a tool of healing as your hands are. Mm -hmm. You know, know, Francis Weller has a lovely line about this that I won't get exactly right. But he says, this is the work that you can only do alone, that you can only do in community. I don't have it exactly Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. But that it is work that only you can do. Mm-hmm. And you can only do it in community at, at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the question you asked me, by the way, is very central always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that it's all about presence. Mm-hmm. It's all about another great tool of healing, which I think the whole cancer retreat is based on, is a kind of a listening, mm-hmm. a kind of a non a kind of generous, what we call in the medical program, generous listening. And it was the experience of this that I took to the Healers Art Curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we have taught to 16,000 medical students Mm -hmm. at this time. Generous listening. That when someone speaks to you, uh, most of the time you're really kind of busy. Most all of us are busy. Uh, as someone's talking, we're saying to the to ourselves, you know, do I like what they're saying or don't I like what they're saying? Do I agree with what they're saying or don't I agree with what they're saying? This is just below the level of consciousness. Sometimes we can tap into it very easily. Um, is this person smarter than I am or not as smart as I am? Are they more educated? I mean, all of these, these things are happening. And of course, if you're trained as a health professor, you get another layer. What's wrong with this person? And how much more time do I have in this appointment? And how much more time do I have in this appointment? Right. It's true. Right. What's wrong with this person? Um, do I know how to fix it? If I don't know how to fix it, do I know where to look it up? And if I can't do that, who do I call in? And someone is talking to you about something of deep importance to them. And if they're sick and if they have a disease like cancer, there's fear. And all the time this self-talk is going on. So generous listening is you simply stop that. It doesn't matter why a person believes what they believe. Um, It doesn't matter what you think about it. You listen simply to know what is important for this person, what is true for this person at this moment. And as a person with a severe chronic illness myself, one of the most terrifying things about it is that it separates you from the human race. It's almost like when I was younger, it felt like there was a a thick pane of glass, you know, bulletproof glass. I could see people, I could hear them, but I couldn't touch them, and they couldn't touch me, and they had no idea. Yeah, you've lived with Crohn's disease since you were since 18. I was 15, 15, and I've had nine major surgeries right. behind it, right? Um, and that when you listen like this, mm-hmm. that goes away. Mm-hmm. When you're listened to, when somebody knows 
just knows how it is with you. And they accompany you into the unknown, not because they know what's going to happen. They don't. But they're going to be there with you no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And they know how it is for you. They know your most intimate ideas about it. I think that this gives people, this, this frees them from the constriction of fear. Mm-hmm. And that in the presence of this kind of listening, you can begin to find your strength, your unique way. And often that leads to greater healing, sometimes of the body, sometimes of the life mm-hmm. of a person. And I think that's what the Commonwealth Concert Retreat is all about. You mentioned that you took the the generous listening from the Cancer Help Program to the Healer's Art. Uh, Say a word about your 25 years of work with the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonwealth. Because really, it, it was such an extraordinary piece of work. And you continue to be the medical director of the Cancer Help Program. But in the 25 years that Ishii was here, it's now moved on to a great medical school, which is something we all celebrate. But in the 25 years that it was here, what you accomplished was extraordinary, and it's an example of what you were saying about Commonweal creating space for people to do their true life work. For those who don't know Ishii, Say a few words about what that's been. The Institute for the Study of Health and Illness has been about um, restoring medicine to its original um, commitment to healing, compassion, uh, reverence for life, um, kindness, love, Mm -hmm. which is the basis of it all. And it started actually when we started getting a few um, calls from doctors, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Who, whose patients would come out of the cancer help program, go to their doctor and say, I just been the most wonderful week. And the doctors would call and say, do you do this for doctors? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea that mm-hmm. we were going to gather up a group of doctors and see what happened, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> And what happened has been truly amazing. Uh, after the first year, you want you should I tell the story? Of yeah, the please, part? please. After the first year, we did five sessions: one on the role of the mind in medicine, the role of the emotions in medicine, the role of the soul, God forbid, in medicine, and and the healing of the body in medicine. And this is a think tank. Essentially, these were week-long retreats, mm-hmm. and um, usually eight to ten doctors were in it. And it was, we could ask questions that we never dared to ask and wonder about things together. Very exciting time. So this ended. And at that point, um, a man who um, was a monk and was also a, a teacher at UCSF was approached by two medical students who wanted a, a lecture on the role of the soul in medicine. And he was completely, uh, he didn't know what to say, but they felt they could ask him this question. But he had sat on a board with me, and he remembered this crazy lady who talked to him about <laughs> Commonweal and, and the people with the cancer and all of this. And he called me up and asked him if I would give a, asked me if I would give a lecture on the role of the soul in medicine. And um, 
I, and you know, for me, the whole story of my life, I am always doing the right things for the wrong reasons. <laughs> if I knew the right reasons to do these, I probably would never do them. But the wrong reason is always very attractive to me. So I'll move We, we share it. that in common. I, it's a bit bizarre, right? <laughs> so I am get immediately get what this is about. This is an opportunity to take my doctors and have them give a course. <laughs> you know, right in the belly of the beast to the medical students. They'd be wonderful, right? And I say, I'll tell you, I won't give a lecture. I'm happy to give a course on the role of the soul in medicine. Mm -hmm. Right, And so we sneak through a crack in the wall, which is called a student-initiated elective. You can give an elective on anything if the students have asked you to do it. Mm -hmm. And we start the healer's art. And it was an amazing experience. You want to hear about this? Yeah. They gave us a room, uh, not in the cellar, but in the sub-cellar. <laughs> <laughs> of the hospital. So we arrived down there and there are all the broken wheelchairs and the broken gurneys, you know, in this corridor. Mm -hmm. All of the broken extras of, and we're gathering them up, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we go into this room and 10 students show up and we have a great discussion about uh, mystery and the unknown and medicine. It goes on for two hours, right? And there's 10 doctors and 10 students, right? And we tell them we'll come back next week. So we come back next week and the elevator door opens and there's lots of people down there, lots of people. I said, oh my God, there's another class. <laughs> you know, there's usually 40 people down here. Lana, no, they're here for us. <laughs> they don't fit in the room. So we have a little kerfuffle and they give us another room and we talk about the role of the heart and love and medicine, right? And then the next week, there was almost the whole class there. And we realized we had tapped into something. And that was the beginning of the healer's art. And we did it for about five years. Um, it talks about calling and meaning and service and healing and grief and loss and growth and what it means to be a human being and human strength and relationship based on that. And it's all discovery model. It's not a, deduct, a, didact, a didactic course. It's a course that allows people to try things on, become things, and get feedback on that. It's, it's very, um, it's not informational education, which is what medical school is about. It's transformational education. And in the fifth year, um, they're really well, they're so well-bred, some of these young students, you know. They always come at the end of the course and they thank you for, you know, taking the time to coming and volunteer. We're all volunteers, although we teach this, volunteering for the course. And, um, lovely. So it's the end of the course. On the fifth year, we've been doing this for five, five, once a year for three months. Right. Um, and this beautiful young man, he, a Asian Indian young man, comes up and thanks me and says, um, I really feel that I should tell you that I'm not a medical student here. Mm. And I said, oh, my God, because we, we don't check. 
people just walk in. And I said, well, to myself, I hope he's a nurse. I hope he's a nursing student. I hope he has something to do with the school. And I said, oh, what do you do? He says, oh, I'm a medical student. I, I go to Yale. And I said, um, oh, are you on a sabbatical? He said, no. I said, well, I've seen you here every two weeks. He says, uh, I fly in. <laughs> I said, why are you doing this? He says, well, my, my, my roommate from Harvard took the course last year, so it was one, very important. And I want to uh, take it to Yale. And I hear myself do this thing. Oh, no, this is a California thing. It's full of imagery and, you know, <laughs> touching and, you know, all that. I mean, this, this, is, this wouldn't work at Yale. I mean, Harvey Cushing's office is exactly the way he, he left it 100 years ago when he went home and died. His pen is still on the desk there. I don't, and besides which, your faculty is research. They haven't seen a patient in years. This is not, I mean, they're doctors, but I mean, uh, and I go on and on and on and on and this young man is standing there and he says I finally went down and he says but we're going to try aren't we Rachel <laughs> yeah. and I was shamed into it so I <laughs> I flew to Yale and all the research doctors were there and I trained them to teach the healer's art and they taught the healer's art and the remarkable outcomes that we'd been seeing for five years were exactly the same Exactly. And then I realized that this was something different than I thought. And it's now taught in 90 medical schools as well as seven foreign countries. Um, there's a nursing course now, which is very much the same kind of a course, but for it's, it addresses the shadow of the profession. And collectively, it allows people to own the thing the shadow has repressed in them. And in medicine, it's the heart, the spirit, right? In nursing, it's the cognition, the initiative, right? And the course validates those repressed issues. Um, this young man is now our Surgeon General. His name is Vivek Murthy, and on September the 1st, he had a little baby boy. His first baby is so wonderful. Yeah, and a lot of the old And students, you and I had lunch with him. Uh, yes, we did. Actually, dinner, dinner. with him about uh, yes. six months ago. Yeah. Uh, with Akhil Palanasamy, uh, yes. his friend, who is yes. this extraordinary man at Pacific Medical Center. Um and, the and he, was the reason that Vivek came. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And and both of them are astonishing people. Um, but just coming back to Vivek, um, here he is, really transformed by your course, the healers are, and now the Surgeon General of the United States. Mm -hmm. And actually, as Surgeon General, he has been using that influential position uh, to... Uh, carry this impulse into the broader community. Um, and so, uh, and you mentioned it's now in 90 medical schools around the world, actually, mm -hmm. including many, if not most, of the best medical schools in the United States. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's just pause for a moment to just sort of take that in, you know. That's a commonweal story. Excuse That's a me? classic 
common real story. Right. Yeah. But I think I think the thing about it is that, and I don't want to make this about common real. I think the thing about it is that great innovations in almost any field almost have to start from outside. They they rarely can start from inside Absolutely. the field. You know, and therefore there is a need for these containers where. Um, People with ideas that are ahead of their time can find the support and the community that they need in order to do this. And, you know, I've often thought that Commonweal, um, Carolyn Brown, one of the co-founders of Commonweal, once said that she thought Commonweal was simply one of the hundreds of acupuncture points on the face of the earth, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so it seems to me that all over the world, there are people and places like this in different ways that are serving as those containers at the edge of whatever the standard belief system is that enable uh, the thought leaders and the uh, leading practitioners in these different areas to begin to develop their ideas and explore them uh, and, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about, both of us, is that almost every significant project here has started very small. It, start, it didn't start with a big bang and lots of funding and, no. oh, we're going to change the world and this, right. that, and the other. No, it starts very small and it starts with an impulse and you make your mistakes early while it's small and you're testing it and you're not, you know assuming anything uh, grandiose about it. And then you let it teach you. It's not as if you have the idea about how it's all going to mm -hmm. be laid out. You are in relationship with this thought, which doesn't really belong to you or me or anyone no. else. It comes through us at a certain level. But it, 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 something of it comes through it, and then something of it is coming through other people, and we're in relationship with this um, impulse. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Michael Lerner and Rachel Naomi Remen. I think that, first of all, yeah. I think there are many places where people nurture each other's ideas. Mm -hmm. I think Commonweal is absolutely unique. I think you are a genius. And I don't like you <laughs> making it, oh, they're everywhere, because they're not. They're well, not Rachel, forgive me, but I think you're the genius, and I'm just the guy who provided the yes, thought I know. For I hear a group all of that. other people right, who are really exactly. good at what they do to work. Exactly. So, I, so really we, can, we can do this. Delusional. Better. You know, you know what the word genius. You know what the word genius actually means. What? It's actually an interesting word. It means the spirit of the place. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, See, isn't you, that a beautiful you word? You know things like this yeah. all the time. The word genius, at least I think I'm right, means. Yeah. Eric, do you know that? Am I right? It means the spirit, spirit of, the of the place. Yeah. Genius loci, the spirit of the place. Yeah. So that's a nice kind of. In other words, instead of holding it up as you know, something too special. God forbid. God forbid. If we see if we see each of ourselves as spirits of the place. Anyway, we could carry anyway, on with this, but, but that's let me the, just say, okay. you know, um, there really is a common real way, but it's a 
process way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say almost the same thing that you said, but I'm going to say it the way we say it to mm-hmm. um, medical students mm-hmm. about how, how to make change. Mm-hmm. Right? So you start small mm-hmm. and you do something small, mm-hmm. right? And you just try it out. And then you get all this criticism, mm-hmm. which you regard as colleagueship, mm-hmm. right? And you adjust because mm-hmm. you're not, and you, you do it again. And all the criticism goes back. And you adjust again because mm-hmm. this is how the hero's art got built. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were not on, we had the idea, but we did not have the method at all. Right. Mm-hmm. right? And then it all came back again. And all of this is below the level of the public eye. Right. right? When you grow these very deep roots that are based in experience, in experience, mm-hmm. the process allows you to base your, you, whatever you're doing in reality, not what you love or what you're attached to, but in something that works for people because mm-hmm. you have the input of all these people, then you become visible. And you become visible with something that is bulletproof. Mm-hmm. It, I think that's right. And this is this is what happened with the healer's art. Right, and you had a lot of peer-reviewed papers published and After, extraordinarily well, people on the faculty at UCSF. No, we had the peer-reviewed papers published to interest people who were too cowardly mm-hmm. to try an innovation like this unless there were peer-reviewed right, papers. Right, I understand that. But that was way down the line. I understand that. But when we when we when we actually began disseminating, mm-hmm. we had a lot of ex- in other words, you know it works because it has been built by many, many people if out of their own experience. Yeah. And a lot of Commonwealth stuff is that reliable, that trustable. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned the healer's art, and you, we've talked about Ishi, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, but you have another wonderful innovation, was the finding meaning in medicine groups. And you continue to have a group of doctors who meet at your house once a month, is that right? Yes, for, for about So tell us a little years. about that. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I did this because I was lonely. Right. You did it with what? I, I was lonely. Yeah. So I started this in, in my house. And um, it started with four friends, um, doctor friends, who came over. And we had a topic each time. Um, and as you know, I'm a storyteller. Um, this is known in my profession as anecdotal evidence, and it's looked down upon. <laughs> How could anything be useful if it only happened to one person, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, no one's ever heard a parable and things like that. But at any rate, I'm a storyteller. And what I wanted to do was not to feel so alone in my profession. So I invited people who were, you know, pretty straight up doctors. Right? Uh, but I knew them well. And I told them we were going to meet and we'd have a word each each time that um, was related to the very foundation of medicine, the very meaning of medicine. So the word could be um, suffering, or the word could be loneliness, or the word could be grace, or the word could be mystery, or the word could be 
love or the word could be home. And we'd have a word each time we met, and the price of admission was to bring a story from your work about the word. When either the word happened or the word didn't happen. And we would all tell the stories, and then we'd have um, some discussion that arose out of this about how this word was part of our lives and our commitment and our calling, right? So we start doing this, and we start having a really good time. And if you don't have a story from your your professional life, you can bring a poem about the story from the world literature or of something's written about the story, about the word. Um, you can bring an object? You can bring an object, but usually not. Usually yeah, people not. sometimes bring things, mm-hmm. but they're things that are part of a story. I get it, yeah. Um, and you can bring, um, my goodness, some people brought um, things to do, like an exploratory thing. For example, um, we had a, one of the early ones on mystery. Uh, one of the women, and, and this starts growing, by the way, because the three other people, they got friends, and they start talking about this to their doctor friends, and their doctor friends want to come, and the group starts to grow. And after it gets to about 12 people, um, it's too big because you have two hours. We just did one last night. Uh, two hours you have, and everyone should What was the subject time. last night? Totem. Totem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, so then somebody says, why am I driving two hours to this meeting? I can do this in my living room. This is not hard. Mm-hmm. And another group will form. And there are five groups in the Bay Area from the original group. And we have 40 people. And we send out the word. And 12 people usually show up, 12 or 10, 15 people, something like that. It's not always the same people. And it's, it is wonderful. But I was going to tell you about how people do discovery model because uh, people become very familiar with it through, through the FMM group itself. By the way, before you go there, how many FMM groups are there around the country and so forth at this point? Well, they're, they're all over Europe, too, and, mm-hmm. and South and Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even track it anymore. Uh-huh. We stopped tracking it at 400. Uh-huh. Okay. Because you can, anyone can do this. Yeah. You can do this, you know. And on our website, you can download um, um, a little handbook that tells you exactly how to do this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's public stuff like this. Um, so fairly early on, this, this woman, this very tough woman who said very little, a very formidable woman, uh, an oncologist, um, showed up one night and we were doing a mystery. Right? And she had a shopping bag, a, pa- a paper bag, and she stuck it under a chair. And, and then there was a pause when everyone takes a turn. So she then said she wanted to to do her thing, and she starts unloading stethoscopes mm. from the shopping bag, which she said she had liberated from the emergency room at Kaiser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we each get a stethoscope, and she takes my, my, my bells, 
and she says, this is very simple. We're going to do something very simple. We're going to do something you haven't done since the second year of medical school. We're going to put this in our ears, and we're going to put it against our chest and listen to our own hearts. And after seven minutes, I'm going to ring the bell, and we'll unplug and talk about what this was like. Right? Fine. And people start rolling their eyes. But the rules are you go with whatever's happening, and you listen generously. You accept whatever's happening as truth, right? So we plug in, and I look around, and I see most of the middle-aged doctors, they're worried. Is that an opening click? (laughs) 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 That is third heart sound. Um, they're, They're literally diagnosing. What they're listening to, of course, because that's what you do with us. But seven minutes is a very long time. And we move past that into something that has been happening in us since before we were born. Something that is connected to life itself. It is a powerful experience of mystery. Just so powerful. People started crying. And she rings the bell after seven minutes. It's like a meditation, you know, on life, right? Rings the bell after seven minutes, and this woman says, and what was this like for you? And the cardiologist in the room says, I have listened to thousands and thousands of hearts, and I haven't heard a single one. Mm -hmm. And we all got a sense of how we had been talked out of the mystery of our work, talked out of it by the siren sound of science or whatever that is. And, you know, residents, you may have noticed when you go to a hospital, residents wear stethoscopes around their necks. It's a badge of some sort. (laughs) So when I do any kind of a talk or workshop with residents, I always start this way. You say, that thing around your neck, let's plug in, let's, and we do this. And then we stop and talk. Yeah. But you see, when you do FMM, you don't have to do anything except remember your own story that you're going to bring. It, the whole curriculum comes to you. The whole thing comes in the door with the people. And it's stuff that you would never imagine. It's a creative And this is community stuff. It's a creative community and very simple to do. And people tell each other. You know, it's simple, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy in this sense that these kind, this kind, I mean, this is circle work at a certain level and different from the circle. Oh, yeah. And so, as you know, we're developing, uh, you and I said a long time ago, that we both wished we could take the Cancer Help Program and put it in a box and make it available oh, widely. Wonderful. So this Healing Circles Project, as you know, that we've had underway for a year and a half, is an effort to put the Cancer Help Program experience in a box, or really to create a learning community of people who are dedicated to this kind of, uh, of learning process. And just as you've done in medicine, to make it available to cancer patients and, and others with different conditions of loss. And I think one of the truths about this is that at one level, this work is simple, but it isn't necessarily easy. And by that, I mean that the quality of the circle depends on a number of things. Um, 
it, at least in my view, it depends on, it's hard to put into words, but some kind of wisdom and kindness or something, empathy, uh, compassion. It depends on some qualities of whoever is holding the group. And then it depends on the quality of the people who show up. And, and I don't mean this in any elitist sense. I simply mean that this can be, the, the, the process model is simple, but it can be done better or worse. And the ways in which people learn to do it better, it seems to me, can almost be a lifetime of study, mm-hmm. in my experience. Uh, there's, there's no end to the depth from which one can listen. Another way of saying that is that, I mean, I've been doing the Cancer Health Program for 30 years, and I'm constantly learning. It's a constant living, learning process. And so the question of who am I as I show up for a Cancer Health Program has has changed over 30 years, and in fact changes depending on the week. And so it just seems to me, I'd love to hear your view of this, that yes, anybody can do it, but the quality with which it will be done and the nature of the experience in that particular circle will vary depending on Who's quite there? a few different things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, the cancer health program is, I would call, a fairly, really very sophisticated and complex intervention. No, that is true. Yeah. FMM is a two-hour meeting which is leaderless. It has a series of rules that, you know, of interaction. Yeah. Among them, generous listening. No. But um, it's a two-hour intervention. And it's it's much more like something that I had thought about many years ago. Um, AA. Having AA for cancer patients. Um, AA for doctors is FMN. Well... This interests me enormously, so let's spend a few minutes on this, because yeah. when we think about healing circles, which is FM, uh, finding meaning in medicine for cancer patients and others, uh, caregivers, you know, all kinds of different groups, AA is, in my mind, one of the original generative models. Oh, it's an right. amazing, it was right. an act of genius. Right. Yeah. And I actually walked yesterday morning with my dear friend who lives here in Bolinas, and uh, we were talking about the AA model, which she knows in great depth. And I was actually asking her, how does AA deal with a difficult person in the circle? Because in AA, you get all kinds of difficult people in the circle. Whereas in our healing circles work, or in the cancer help program, we tend not to get a lot of difficult people, but when somebody difficult shows up, you've got to figure out how to work with it, right? But you see, you're living with them. <laughs> well, for a week. Me. You're living with yeah, them. Yeah, but a week. even it's if you're close. not, even like Healing Circles Langley, which is our flagship group, this is one of the issues. In other words, you get some somebody in a circle who can't stop talking. Just take that as one of the most common examples. They just can't stop. So what are the methods that you use to do that in a, you know, in a good way? And I guess what I'm saying, like there's, you know, the peer spirit counseling model, which actually came out of AA. And there's um, Parker Palmer's model, which is another, you know, uh, model. There's your model, of course, out of Finding Meaning in Medicine. 
So there are all these different forms of circle work, which are used for different professional groups, or some are used in corporate organ things, and some are for patient groups, and so on and so forth. The intention of healing circles, as you know, really is to try to take the essence of things like the Cancer Help Program, but do it in a in a learning community where we're not assuming that even with 30 years in the Cancer Health Program, we have the best knowledge about how to do circle work in somebody's living room or in a church or something like that. And um, so I deeply agree with you that AA is one of the most profound examples, but it's also true that human beings have been sitting around campfires telling stories since the beginning of time. And so the ways in which those circles work have kept shifting over millennia, but there are certain core principles of it, I suspect, that have gone on for a very long time. Gosh, you know, I, um, I'm so non-intellectual. Excuse me? <laughs> I'm so non-intellectual. Mm -hmm. um, I can just offer um, what we have are a group of what we call habits of interaction. Mm -hmm. Which are like the traditions in habits. AA. No interrupting. Right. Right. Um, they're just basic. They're they're very basic. There are about mm -hmm. five or six of them. Everyone has to agree to them. Mm -hmm. And then whoever's house this is happening mm -hmm. in, or you know, whoever has been appointed mm -hmm. um, the habits person, right? Mm -hmm. If someone starts and, and share time is mm -hmm. one of them. Mm -hmm. um, if someone starts to go on and on and on, that person just goes like this and says. To the group, not mm -hmm. to the person. Mm -hmm. Remember that we have all agreed to share time. Do we still agree? Mm -hmm. Do we still hold our commitment to that mm -hmm. agreement? Mm -hmm. That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. And the person is talking too much would say, oh, I'm sorry, I had a great deal on my heart. Mm -hmm. And the group may say, please continue. The group may say, please continue, or the group may reach out and just take hands with him. Mm -hmm. And then someone else will start to speak with the whole one to his hand. Mm -hmm. So you sort of weave it in, mm -hmm. is the way I describe it. We do not have a leader. No one is in charge of the process. Everyone is responsible mm -hmm. for the process. And th these five little things allow whoever no matter what their experience is, leading groups, mm -hmm. to simply say, you know, we um, agreed no interruptions. Can we hold to that agreement now? Yeah. yeah, that's all. Without criticism. And I hear that, and I think that in most groups, the peer spirit counseling model is also leaderless, in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that informally in groups, that whether you call people leaders or not, that leaders are either implicitly there or emerge. And, um, and so, um, and I also think that it helps to train leaders, whether they're called leaders or facilitators or space holders, it helps to, to train. Uh, uh, Janie Brown, who is the founder of Kalanish uh, up in British Columbia, which is one of three or four centers that have done the cancer help program for, tw for 20 or more years. And she has this beautiful thing that she says. She says, uh, 
she wonders for a cancer help program, how many stones it takes to hold the circle. Mm -hmm. And she's thought a lot about it. Stones meaning centered people who are really able to hold the process. She's come to the conclusion that it's about four stones to hold a cancer help program. I believe it. Right. And I think in our cancer help program, part of the power is that we have seven or eight stones in the, you know, we have a whole bunch of stones who've been there for 10, 15, time. 20 years. Yeah. Um, so I would ask a similar question about really powerful healing circles, uh, which is how many explicit or implicit stones does it take? Now, I don't think it takes four in a circle, but I think that realistically it takes at least two. It takes at least two people who have the maturity and the experience and the understanding of what's going on so that this leaderless process to take the leaderless model uh, can actually happen. I, I actually prefer, and it's just purely who I am as a human being, I prefer that the leadership be made explicit rather than implicit because I think the implicit model um, disguises the oh. fact that there's actually leadership. But this is a real conversation. But wait, this is a, a let, let's yeah. take this a yeah. step further. First of all, the Commonwealth, uh, the cancer retreat, yeah. the, you can't even compare no, it. No, I'm They're not apples comparing. apples and oranges. I'm not comparing. But when there's a group that arises mm -hmm. out of a, a purpose, mm -hmm which is mm -hmm. to to share mm -hmm. deep meaning and personal meaning with mm -hmm. uh, in a profession, let's say. Um, and it's never the same group that's there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's completely different groups and different mixtures mm -hmm. of people. Um, the community itself is, is the leadership. Mm -hmm. I can't quite explain. I, I can't say. There's, it is actually the community and the, the fellowship between people, even though they don't know each other's names, this is the place where this happens. They've been with other groups. This is a new group for them, but they've been in the mm -hmm. same place. Mm -hmm. um, if I said to you the problem doesn't come up, mm -hmm. and if it doesn't come up among doctors, but it doesn't come up, we have a consulting system. Mm -hmm. um, it's very rare mm -hmm. that they have a, they have to ask a person not to mm -hmm. come or anything like this. Well, I think this is an example of mm -hmm. creative inquiry between us, and I I, yeah. I I take what you say to be true. I mean, obviously, in AA, for example. Uh, it's the same. Any two alcoholics can start an AA chapter. Right. And they have, as you say, habits. They have traditions. And um, uh, I said to, to her, so how does, AA has a lot of difficult people. How do you do this oh, with them? And her, her answer was, we love them. That's a, I, she said, exactly we love right. them. And she said, uh, exactly you know, right. that different things may happen, like two of the more senior people may just come and put their arms around the person. Exactly or, right. you know, if they're having real trouble, they may say, let's step outside for a moment. Yeah. And, and But AA is an example. I mean, just as funny as AA medicine is. is. Like, yeah. you've been doing this for, what, how many years have oh, you been doing it? A long time. Yeah. Long, long time. Okay, 20 years. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> But I think what happens, and you've done it deeply in FM, uh, Finding Meaning in Medicine, 
AA has been done it for a long, long time. time. And so yeah. its habits have gotten very deep and experienced. Yeah. And, and, and trusted. I, and exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what's happened with Finding Meaning in Medicine. And that's only beginning to happen with our Healing Circles project. I mean, we're only, you know, two years into it. But you couldn't run a cancer retreat this way. No, no, I'm not talking about the cancer. Yeah, I'm not talking about the cancer. I am exploring the fact that you've developed this incredible Finding Meaning in Medicine model, as well as the healers are, and... We're now doing what you and I hoped to do originally, which is find the essence of the Cancer Health Program and make it widely, widely available. And we're at that early point where the habit-forming process is taking place. And different groups uh, on Whidbey Island and Houston and North Carolina and elsewhere are beginning to examine and explore together how it works. How it works, yeah. Yeah. In some deep way. Yeah. 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 Let me shift to another question that is of great interest to some of us, um, um, which is not about um, Commonweal or Ishii or the Cancer Help Program, but we are both experiencing aging. Oh, yes, indeed. (laughs) And um, I find aging to be an extremely interesting experience. Uh, And... um, and I just wanted to ask you, since you're a little ahead of me in this uh, lineage, this great lineage, uh, how do you hold your own aging process? Not gracefully, I must say. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so interesting. There's so much difference between someone who is eight and someone who is 16. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of difference between someone who is, let's say, 25 and someone who is 33. Mm-hmm. Someone who is 33, you know, it, the, the, as you get older, those years mm-hmm. don't make a whole lot of difference. Mm-hmm. A lot of friendships, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then you get down the other end. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of difference between 70 and 78. Mm-hmm. As much as between 8 and 16, mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Um I hadn't, I think I had known I was going to get old, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't expected to get old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I find it very frightening at Mm -hmm. times. It's very lonely, Mm -hmm. very, very frightening. Um, You find that um, you may not be able to function by yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, the world gets a lot smaller. You may not be able to drive. Um, you may not be able to do very simple things, like something falls on the floor and you have to wait to, for someone who's going to come to your house and pick it up, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's a question of interdependence and how you feel about that. Uh, I'm a person who's always lived alone. With, uh, well, not, not really alone. I have cats. <laughs> I have wonderful cats. But I, I live alone. And um, I'm not used to not being able to take care of myself completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult. When you said it's frightening, what, what do you find is the thing that frightens you most about it? Well, um, 
this is California. This isn't a very communal. No. I mean, one of the great things you've done, Michael, is create community here. Mm. But uh, Mill Valley is not exactly your hotbed of community. Mm. Um, the hotbed of you know some pretty entitled people right. who are operating on their own, you know, radar systems. Mm. Um, there isn't really community for mm. older people. There's like. Uh, very expensive retirement homes and things of that sort, but not really community. Mm -hmm. That would be a wonderful intervention. Mm -hmm. And when I say community, a house where, where meals are prepared, mm -hmm. and perhaps in rotation and various people helping, and little houses of bedrooms and bathrooms and living rooms without necessarily big kitchens, um, and where there is actually a, a community of people who are providing for one another. Mm -hmm. um, usually when you think of aging here, you think of, you know, professional people. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Michael Lerner and Rachel Naomi Remen. But not people providing mm -hmm. for other mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And I remember years ago visiting my mother and father where they had gone for the summer in um, Florida mm -hmm. and in a place where many old people were in residence, not formally, but they were. And um, I was sitting there and there's a knock on the door. I'm talking to my mother at her kitchen table. Knock on the door, a woman walks in with a, a spool of thread and a needle, hands it to my mother. I, my mother said, this is Sylvia. Hello, Sylvia. She, my hands it to my mother. My mother goes, <laughs> hands it back to her, and she walks out the door. <laughs> right? Now, when my mother needed someone to drive, Sylvia would be one of the persons that she would call upon. My mother never learned to drive. And it's almost like in this community, there was enough seeing to go around. There was enough hearing to go around. There was enough driving to go around. It was in, in not all of the same person, mm -hmm. but the community had what it needed in order to live well, mm -hmm. live well. And it's so un-American not to be independent. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see independence, don't we, Michael, as a kind of a strength? Mm -hmm. It isn't a strength. It's a fearful mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's such a rich subject. Oh, um, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. The new frontier, right? Yeah, it's a new frontier. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very old frontier, right? I mean, it's one that's been going on for a long time. And I've, I, um, I realized that the, the thing I am least attracted to is losing memory. That's the one that's the hardest for me. And, and I've thought to myself, if I reach a point where my memory isn't functioning, do I, do I want to be here? You know? uh -huh. and, I'm, and only recently I thought to myself, you know, um, actually you and I both have a friend who's losing memory now. And... Um, and she said something very beautiful. She said, you know, I just see it as another way of being. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could see it that way. 
But up until now, I've thought, man, that's the defining one for me. If I can't remember, I'm just not sure I want to be here. And now I'm sort of opening to the question of, well, is that the decisive one, you know? How how, how important? Um, I think it's frightening. (laughs) Marion is very funny. She says, uh, growing old is like filled with amazement. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? She says, you open your icebox and there are your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. There, ha- there is that dimension. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I do not remember things. I, my, my recent memory is poor. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me. I say, well, I haven't got it. Mm-hmm. I haven't got it. And so how is that for you? Well, I noticed something interesting. Um, when I'm doing intellectual things, because my mind doesn't have the quick answer, mm-hmm. I get another answer. Uh-huh. And the other answer is from a place in me that's much more profound than yeah. mine. Mm-hmm. That my mind would give the intellectual thing and mm-hmm. let's go on. And the intellectual thing is sometimes simply not available. Mm-hmm. It's just not available. And something else responds. On a soul level. Yeah. On a different level, yeah. a soul level, an emotional level. Mm-hmm. And I've done a number of talks and things mm-hmm. where this has happened. Right? Someone will ask me a question from the audience. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just not there. But what is there is something else. Mm. And I say that something else. And it's much more powerful mm. than what I would have said. Mm. You know, it's really strange. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it is for us a new frontier, a very ancient frontier. Um, and our collective generational period is, in many respects, less prepared for this than any other generation for quite some time. I mean, I think a whole bunch of us really didn't focus on getting old, you know. I mean, just the fact that the idea that people had savings for this period of life, you know, is is a rare event. And um, so, um, but, but let me take it to the next step because there are the fears of aging, but you've thought a lot about uh, dying, and um, so you've described yourself as uh, you've described the aging process as frightening, and uh, and at the same time, when we get into it, for example, I give my example of my fear of memory loss, and you talk about living with memory loss, which I'm living with too, and how things come from a different level. But how are you holding, having taught about it for thirty years? How are you holding uh, death and dying themselves at this point? You know, I'm not. Uh, I don't. I don't really deal in this way with with things like that. Um, I don't uh, hold things like that. I just do process. You just do what? Process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I can think of a lot of things I would miss. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of missing things mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I worry about where I would want to be buried. Mm-hmm. Or would I want to be cremated? I'm one of these people who does not have a living will because I can't decide that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, would I want to be on a ventilator or not on a ventilator? Well, it depends. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in coma for a year and it was a wonderful experience. It really was. And uh, so I, I don't have an answer for those questions that they ask you for the living will. Now I have a gerontologist who's outraged that I don't have a living will. So we were starting to have discussions about ventilators and things like this. And I think I've got them outclassed. <laughs> but, you know, you said before, how, how do I feel about getting old? Um, basically, I feel insulted. Mm-hmm. And how do I feel about dying? Um, I hope I'm, I don't die in pain. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to die in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think happens after death? Oh, I think there's something more. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we turn into nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, do all of the wonderful systems that have been built about mm-hmm. what that something more might be. Um, that's that's interesting, but you know, it's truly. I think it's mystery. I think there are things that I know that I've never learned. Mm-hmm. There's information that I have that I, I've never learned here. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's more to it than this. Right. Yeah. Do you have any sense of what you feel your contribution has been or how you would like your contribution to be remembered? Well, that was a thing that I was thinking about uh, a lot last year um, when we moved on the issue to Wright State. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your uh, legacy? Mm-hmm. You know, they're big up. They, people start talking about legacies mm-hmm. and things like this. And, and you know, I think a lot of people tend to want a building mm-hmm. <laughs> with a, a name on it or mm-hmm. something. Something that. And um, I think I, I I may have told you how how it comes up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes up like this. Um, 16,000 medical students are doing their, will be doing their medicine differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll be teaching their students to do their medicine differently. And those students will be teaching their students to do their medicine differently. And maybe um, 400 years from now in some room with equipment that we have never conceived of, mm-hmm. right, uh, some physician-type person will be dealing with a frightened human being and um, will respond to that person differently, mm-hmm. by listening differently, by accompanying them differently, whatever the magnificent treatments that will be available then. And I will be in that room. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I will be in that room as clearly as I'm in this room. <laughs> and to me, that's what this is about, that the, the impulse, the impact of your life the, goes on for generations and generations and generations, just as my life is impacted by people from the 14th century. Mm-hmm. And it's like you've been woven into mm-hmm. the thread, the tapestry of humanity. Mm-hmm. And the thread continues and it continues to, to be, it made a difference that I was alive. Yeah. I like that very much. And it fits with, with my experience. Um, you know, one of the things when we've been doing Commonwealth for 40 years and, um, and people naturally start worrying about what will happen if Michael's not here, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I understand that. Um, but, and there are kind of two schools of thought. One is, uh, I loved it, one of the staff people said, I think Commonwealth's a house of cards that Michael built, and when he's gone, it's just going to collapse. Mm-hmm. And and somebody else said, no, no, it, you know, there's there's real value here, and and, <laughs> and and you know, my approach is that I wish Commonweal well for as long as it continues to be of true service, mm-hmm. and as long as it continues to be of true service. I think it will continue to find support. Mm. But my own sense of personal lineage is the lineage of the ever-renewed resources of human beings who wanted to live lives of service. And just as you said that, you know, that 400 years from now, um, some physician in some room we can't imagine will be helping a patient and you will be there. I like to experience myself and I like to experience Commonweal as a container for that lineage of service, you know? Beautiful. It just, and may it be sustained as long as it is useful, but let us not fetishize it or let us not um, reify it or let us not hold it as something that needs to be held beyond its useful life. Mm-hmm. And my actual belief is that if you approach it that way and simply focus on the work that is in front of us at any moment, it's actually likely to be sustained longer than if you worry about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the reason I bring this up is because... Um, you know, relatively few organizations do outlive their founders for any long period of time, or they, you know, collapse or whatever. But I'm not sure that's the right question. You know, I think the right question is, can we continue to be a holder of, as you said, uh, a community of people who have visions at the forward edge of their fields Mm -hmm. And find a place to do this work together. And when I imagine all the challenges that the next 50 and 100 years are going to bring, which are going to be unbelievable challenges, for any organization to have the flexibility and the collective intention 
to continue to be a lineage holder in that sense for a sustained period of time will be an act of grace. You know, it will be pure grace. But if its use is complete, then let's just celebrate what was done over 40, 50, 60, 80 years, whatever, you know, that that period is. You know what I find so interesting and important about Commonweal is that it's not about what we produce. Mm -hmm. It's a process which Mm -hmm. allows for Mm -hmm. the production of the future. Mm -hmm. It's always needed. Mm -hmm. You know, if we were producing widgets, then widgets Mm -hmm. aren't needed anymore, and so we, we let it go. We don't keep trying to produce widgets when they're not needed anymore. But what Commonwealth is about is not any particular outcome. It's about a process. It's a discovery model. It's a discovery model, but it's also a process of nurturing the highest mm-hmm. in people. Mm-hmm. And that will be needed more than ever mm-hmm. as things deteriorate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. See, I think what you've done is not about the... The planet and not, it is about the planet on the concrete level, but the real contribution Mm -hmm. is how you have figured out how to grow ideas, how to nurture the future, how to bring the best from people. Mm -hmm. Um, That's much more important than what it is that we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, you have often said um, when there's a project before us and how important it is that just because you're good at it and could do it because you're good at it doesn't necessarily mean it's yours to do. And, um, and I think one of the most useful things we've done is to have a pretty good sense of what is ours to do. In other words, people bring different ideas, but then, um, there's a discernment process about whether a particular idea that has come to us is really ours to do, uh, really ours to hold. Um, and in a related way, Rachel, I mean, you've, you, you've, you've spoken of what you think our collective contribution is. But what I really want to say to you is in the 30 years that I've worked with you, 30 plus years, wow. <laughs> it's unbelievable how deeply I have internalized your voice and unbelievable how deeply your thinking and more than your thinking, your intuition has become central to me in the Cancer Help Program and when I give talks or when I write. I often find myself saying, as my friend Rachel Remen says, you know, and I'll just give one example uh, which is so beautiful to me, and I, I've used it a thousand times. Um, something that you said, and I've heard you say again, but you said it many, many years ago, and you said um, you thought that perhaps the purpose of life was to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. And, you know... Um, You've also talked about how each of us has our own unique purpose. So that's a somewhat different story. But, you know, I've reflected so deeply on that. And um, 
That phrase actually has three parts to it, not two. It's not just grow in wisdom and learn to love better. There's also purpose. There's purpose, there's wisdom, and there's love. And so to me, Mm -hmm. what I discovered in that is that those are the three great yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, purpose is karma yoga and jnana yoga is wisdom and bhakti yoga is love. And those are the three great yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. And the Gita concludes that the greatest of those three is love, you know. And you find those three, you find them in Rudolf Steiner, you find them in the Christian tradition, you find them in, you know, every tradition, you know, you know, you find them in Judaism, you find them in all the great traditions, and they are, respectively, the work of the heart, of the head, and the hands, you know. And so I can speak of those others, but you took this very ancient teaching and you put it in a form that I find more memorable for others and for myself. And so you've had a way of taking these very ancient teachings and interpreting them for our time in a way that has become completely internal to me. Hmm. So, you know, I simply want to acknowledge that and to say that in addition to all the medical students and physicians you've reached and all the you know, uh, nurses and all the other health professionals that all around the world, your books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, which are in dozens of different languages and your tapes, and they've reached people and they've spoken to people at a very profound level. And it just seems to me that of of all the contributions that Commonwealth's made over 40 years, um, yours is one of the ones that I hold closest to my heart. Thank you, Michael. I'm honored by that. You know, um, I think the luckiest thing in the world is when you get used. Is what? When you get used. Yeah. You know, um, my own sense um, is that I never intended any of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I never planned or plotted or Mm -hmm. figured out how we were going to. You just get used. Mm-hmm. And the real question is, how do you make yourself available to be used? Mm-hmm. And I think Commonweal is a part of that. People making themselves available, having the courage to let go of things that they thought were precious mm-hmm. in order to be used. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like this, stuff like this. Hmm. I want to open this up for a few comments. Uh, I'd like to ask you to keep them brief and say your name and the question or comment, and we'll see if uh, Rachel has any reflections. Uh, you too, my own. <laughs> yeah, we might do that. <laughs> yes. yes. Please keep... Adria Breyer, I am so grateful you opened the topic about aging, and I had two hits on that as if you have nothing else to do. Mm. The title of the book is I found my shoes in the icebox. <laughs> and the second was, because it's so important and so indigenous to our culture and the aging population, maybe there's a webinar with proceeds to Commonweal where different people are interviewed in your kitchen coming out to all of us because there's so many of us around the country and the world who would love to have that wisdom 
shared in our homes. Well, Rachel has been doing that in a series of uh, conversations. Do you want to say how people can find those, Rachel? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> right. But if you Google Rachel Remen online, you, you, you can, can find You it. can have a look at the yeah. website. Yeah, I have been, a Rachel yeah. Remen yeah. website. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, I've been in the field of gerontology since 1972 when it first became an academic really? discipline in mm. this country. And I know Robert Butler very well. Oh, my God. So Dr. Robert Butler was one of the pioneers yeah. in aging. And his book on longevity, which came out of the Longevity Center in New York, the International mm-hmm. Center for Longevity, is about 600 pages. Mm-hmm. And so and there are so many resources. There are so many, um, there's the so many alternative models of aging um, around the country. Co-housing has now become very big, where there's intergenerational co-housing, there's co-housing for seniors, there's just a wealth of information in, on this field. Rabbi Zalman Shakir Shalomi. Um, uh, did spiritual eldering and um, creative aging. And if you just start Googling, you'll be amazed Mm -hmm. to see how much literature there really is. That's true. So, I mean, enormous amount. That's true. There's a great deal. And, you know, also courses everywhere. And from a holistic standpoint, Ken Dykewald started the holistic aging program and I have the stage training I did in the mid-70s. Thank you. That's and he's true. now president of the American Society on Aging and has the company Ageway. So there really is a lot out there. Thank you. And you're welcome. Yes. Hi, my name is Donna Smirin and it's a great honor to be here. Um, and leveraging a bit on the, the housing issue, um, I'm from a different culture where you usually have three or four generations in a home when aging occurs. And I've always felt in the U.S. the elderly are exported, but when I'm home or when I'm in Europe, it's so wonderful to have people of diverse ages. My dinner table always had three or four generations oh, at wonderful. it. And I know of this co-housing model, but it's not integrating, I think, what I yearn for in the, when I'm in this culture, mm-hmm. which is multiple generations at my dinner table. And I see in the Netherlands, there's a lot of students who are now moving in with those who are aging. One proposal I put to a common friend of ours, um, Dr. Miller, um, was how can we allow hospice training to actually occur in single parent homes and stuff like that. So children are exposed to the beauty of dying and stuff like that. But I, I myself have been unhoused in the Bay Area after 20 years here. More than anything in my life, it would be such a gift to co-live with somebody who's doing mm-hmm. aging because that prepares me for aging because I'm not in a multi-generational home. So. Thank you. That's really great. Yes, Vakitsa. Well, I really... Oh, I'm Vakitsa, and thank you for... Reaffirming, this morning I was filling out that very form. The very form. My favorite part of it was it said, how do you want to tie? Did you get to that part? Yes, I did. But I I had so many. And I wrote down, suddenly. I wrote down in bed, in a hotel, or at home, or in my studio, or doing something really fun. That was my favorite part. But I mean, you said some of the very same things I had problems with. And it reaffirmed because you're like in the scene. Thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. Catherine. Uh, I'm Catherine Rowell. I'm a CHIP alumni. And I just want to say the profound healing I found in my week here 
and I'm very grateful mm. for it. Oh, thank, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Others? Yes, Diana. Diana Alstead. <clears throat> I just want to say that um, because the two of you speak from your heart and you love each other and you have such depth, I just found it very, very special to be in your mm. presence and to be part Diana, of Diana, thank you so much. Yeah. Warren, did you have your hands up? I was going to ask Rachel, if you've been working with medical students now for 30 years, yeah. which means that you've seen two generations at least. And I'm wondering if you're seeing any changes in how, how the young people are approaching questions of healing and purpose and intergenerational work, or medicine to that matter. Yeah, there are. There are a lot of changes. Um, uh, first of all, the millennials. They're millennials. Uh, now they're millennials. They used to not be millennials. Right? <laughs> uh, the millennials are connected through the computer into an almost um, instantaneous community. I mean, I was astounded when the computer became so prevalent. I mean, I don't think people know how to write anymore. <laughs> they, they literally don't. They don't write. But the, um, they, they formed a, the class. Each class forms a community on the computer in which everybody has the available support of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it is quite... Amazing. Nobody goes through medical school alone, or very unless they choose to go through medical school alone. And uh, for me, going through medical school is one of the loneliest experiences. And residency training, terribly lonely, surrounded by judgment on all corners, you know. And they have a community that completely invalidates all that. The judgment's still there, but who cares? <laughs> so uh, it's very different. I think that they have much more tolerance for differences, much more curiosity about differences, much more ease with people who are reared in very different backgrounds than their own. Um it's a, it's a different society. And, of course, they're women. Mm-hmm. Uh, 70% of them are women. Wow. And as a person, across the United States, medical students are women. And I was, uh, I spoke for the American Women's Medical Association a few years back. And I had been the only woman in my class. And I can tell war stories about medical school. Oh, my God. Terrible, terrible. And this was seen as an occupational shortcoming, being a woman, obviously. Um, So I I gave my talk. And then I walked into the ladies' room. And there were all these young things. And they're wearing little fluffy skirts. And they have long earrings and painted fingernails. All I mean, and high heels like this. <laughs> and they're all medical students, <laughs> right? And one girl comes up to me, excuse me, woman. I'm, I'm so old that she looks like someone's granddaughter, right? <laughs> so she comes up to me. She says, oh, Dr. Remen, I loved your talk. I'm so excited. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> and if I could have had one glimpse of her 60 years ago, it would have changed yeah. everything. Yeah. And you know, she's going to be one hell of a nurse. 
with all the fingernails and the fluffiness. I mean, wonderful, 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 wonderful. The difference being that when we went to medical school, medical school was supposed to be our whole lives. Medicine was to be our whole lives. This generation does not want something like that to be their whole lives. Are there other people who haven't asked a question yet? Anybody? Yes. I just want to thank you both for the for this the germ of this conversation and for you doing it. And and Rachel, I did have the privilege of, of attending the Med Institute training while you were teaching there. Mm-hmm. And the the part I got from you was about you were talking about the healing arts was about teaching medical people about mystery, the mystery, and I, that's helping me become friend, friendly with my death now. Mm-hmm with my ending, with even these changes from 71 to 72 going on right this very minute. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. Is it? No, not this That's what I Bring the cake out. Yeah, well, I'll do it anyway. I might have to eat it tomorrow. Thank you very much. That, okay. that, that mystery yeah. has helped me a lot. Yeah. You know, at the very best moments, isn't this true, Michael? Mm-hmm. You asked how do you relate to death. I, I would say with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to call on, uh, yeah, James. Rachel, hi. Um, we had a medical doctor come to one of our programs, and she wanted a group to support her in leaving her profession. And she said that the reason she wanted to leave her profession is because of the lack of integrity that she felt when she had to make up answers when she knew she didn't know. Mm-hmm. And she was living in an ecology where there wasn't that wonder that you just said, or the not knowing, or the let's look at that, the whole exploratory thing. And, and she ended up deciding that, no, I can just say, I don't know. Right. I really don't know. With a and sense of adventure. Saying, <laughs> we can say that? You know, so that bringing into integrity, and I just wonder mm-hmm. if you had any about that. Well, we can talk about medicine a lot. It's being run by economic principles at this moment, which don't agree with the the, the service pr- principles of those in the profession. Right. It's a, it's very, it's a whole other discussion, mm-hmm. really a whole other discussion. Gosh. Hmm. Eric, as you listen, Commonwealth board member Eric Carvelis, uh just any reflection on what you've heard or any thoughts? I think that there's a definite corollary between the two of you as individuals aging and the institutional aging of Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very powerful uh, idea mm-hmm. that perhaps has not been sufficiently plumbed. Mm-hmm. Because I think there does come a time when um, you have to face mm-hmm. the reality of the end. And I think that uh, it's done with great grace by most of us intellectually, and perhaps a little bit less grace on a personal level, mm-hmm. just because. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, both of you help serve uh, to allow for that mm-hmm. uh, lack of grace mm-hmm. for that kind of stumbling and finding your way mm-hmm. as you age. And uh, I, I just think it's very interesting on, a, on, on two levels. Thank you. Among others. Yeah. Thank you. Jennifer, any reflections? 
Here you are, all these years later, sitting here. I remember when we were kids, kind of, sitting in the mystery. And it's just an um, ineffable blessing that we're alive and well enough to be able to be holding a conversation like this that allows for the deep appreciation of each other mm-hmm. and the organization. And it's just Hosanna in the highest. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Penny, uh, any reflections from the garden? Well, yeah. I mean, as I watch the pumpkins, some of them are getting eaten and mm-hmm. sort of rotting, you mm-hmm. know, on the ground. And watching, knowing that what's inside of them are seeds mm-hmm. that are going to reemerge. Yeah. Yeah. I was having a discussion on a podcast about this mm-hmm. very thing about rotting pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And I've been marveling at that because it's actually like a form of a fractal. Mm-hmm. So it comes forward for me is the, to trust in if you're going to trust in life, mm-hmm. you have to trust in death mm-hmm. and trust in that cycle of renewal. And, and I agree. I don't think you just turn to dust. I think mm-hmm. there's something else. And I do. Um, I think curiosity is is mm-hmm. big in my heart when I think about death. Mm-hmm. And when oh, I want to say one more thing. When if somebody I know passes, one of the things I think about is like they get to know the answer. <laughs> yeah. Sarah Olivia, as you you've had a lot of experience with uh, uh, many aspects of life, but your wonderful uh, work with healing centers and so forth. As you've listened to this, any any reflections of yours? There's so many uh, things that were spoken that I feel I am in process with and in the middle of. Mm-hmm. Um, belonging for intergenerational experiences, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. legacy, and how much mm-hmm. time and energy it takes to to honor the past and stepping into roles of leadership and authority at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on what you spoke to about wanting common real to last as long as that purpose of holding container and being of service mm-hmm. um, is still needed mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, with with Rancho La Puerta, we have we have been um, that fruitful pumpkin. There are so mm-hmm. many seeds out mm-hmm. in the world that have sprouted and emulated us, and um, and I I know that there's there's a whole movement mm-hmm. out there that looks a lot like. You know, like us. Yeah. And so um, I think that, that place of trust and also in my, my own personal losses around mm-hmm. death, it's cultivating trust to get us through um, through times of loneliness or separation, loss, pressure, anxiety, concern about loss of memory. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of those things mm-hmm. the value of this rich community mm-hmm. um, is, is with me and, and one question which is I thought I heard you say Rachel that you were in a coma for a year and it was a wonderful experience it's a wonderful trip. that feels like a whole talk in and of itself <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm kind of afraid to ask about it because I want the long answer I'm sure Rachel, oh, Harriet, yes. Well, I was uh, thinking of you um, 
talking about being a storyteller. And I remember being on the beach down in Baja mm -hmm. with a bunch of people from here about 20 years ago. And somebody came up and handed me your book, mm -hmm. Kitchen Table Wisdom. And we wound up passing the book around. Everybody read it. And then everybody reflected on their roots and about what their grandpas were like and what their family was like. And it was, it's just, it was just a little tiny gem in your whole precious oh. gift to all of us. Oh, yeah. And I always remember that because it sparked so many wonderful connections between all of us. So thank you. Thank you. Esteban, I couldn't tell whether you were greeting me or wanting to ask a question. Okay. Oh, no. It was kind of a namaste. Okay. But I just want to acknowledge that Esteban ran the double dipsy twice, four times. No, the quadruple dipsy. The quadruple dipsy. How many times did you run it? Six, seven times as, as a contribution to Commonweal and brought uh, remarkable resources into our work uh, through uh, this remarkable thing. And one of our beloved friends, thank you for being here. So, Neil, uh, have you had any thoughts or reflections as you listen to this? Oh, about 3,000. Okay. <laughs> Is there one you'd like to pick out? Um, I just, I just um, would be surprised if other people didn't say the same thing. It's just being here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that I have to express that in words, mm -hmm. but it's just the feeling of being, I'm, I'm in the right place at the right time, and I'm mm -hmm. just enjoying it, and mm -hmm. it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank so, you. And I will carry that out of this mm -hmm. room. Um, Thank you. Rachel, any last reflections on our conversation? Yeah, something popped into my mind. Um, Vivek on Flint. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was the first coordinator of um, our program of ISHI, and he died of a brain tumor. Uh, much too young, much too young. And in the process of being with us, he discovered he could write poetry. And actually, has had a few books published, wonderful poetry, actually. And uh, he wrote a poem about the work of, of Ishii. And it just kept coming into my mind. Um, uh, it goes like this. In a place of silence, the one who thinks can hear the whisper of the heart. In a place of trust, the one who cures heals. In a place of acceptance, a stone can explode into a butterfly. And I think that's what Commonweal is about, a place of acceptance where a stone can explode into a butterfly. Rachel Naomi Remen, co-founder of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program, continuing medical director of the Cancer Help Program, founder of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal, Beloved partner, beloved friend, beloved teacher, thank you for being with us at the New School.
You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Michael Lerner and Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.